All right, welcome to MBA's Unplugged. I am your host, John Ford, or at least I'm going to be your host until they take me off the air for uh, doing my Carl Voigt impersonation on the show. We're here today with Aaron Wright, who's a first-year MBA student here in the full-time program at USC, and he's got a very interesting story of how he came to business school, why he chose USC, his experience here, and we're going to get to talk about all that. He's spent some, some time in the military and lived all over the country, and uh, we're going to uh, get into his background. So Aaron, thanks for being on the show, and uh, why don't you take a minute to give us a sort of uh, introduction of yourself? All right, thanks, John. Do you want the 30-second uh, the drill or the two-minute drill? Uh, let's try the 30-second. Okay. Uh, so my name's Aaron Rate. Uh, like John said, I'm a, I have a military background. So originally I'm from St. Louis, Missouri by way of Hilton Head, South Carolina. Uh, not a military family. We just moved. Uh, and since then I've spent, or I went to Arkansas state university for my original undergrad and I've spent 10 years in the military following graduation from there in 2011. Uh, so I specialized in a field called explosive ordnance disposal, which is essentially the same thing as like a police bomb squad, but, you know, for the military. Um, and I've also gotten other specialties in like, uh, you know, airborne operations, logistics, recruiting, uh, teaching. It's kind of been a, a very eclectic uh, military career. And after about 10 years, I decided to, uh, to cut it off, you know, try my hand you know, out in the real world with the big boy job. Uh, so I came to USC to, you know, try to figure out what that looks like. Um, and, you know, now I'm here enjoying sunny Los Angeles and, you know, apparently getting really terrible haircuts and then getting it fixed by a really good, another really good barber. Yeah. You were, you were telling me about this in the pre-show a little bit. What happened with your haircut today? So the, uh, the haircut today was a, a fixed job. So over the weekend, um, I live like right across the street from a great clips and I've never gotten my haircut at a great clips, right? Like there's always on a military installation, there's always like uh, a barber in the post exchange. That's kind of like our Walmart or whatever. Um, and it's really hard for people to like mess up a military haircut. It's, you know, especially that's the only thing they do for like a living is, you know, do like a, a fade of some kind. Um, so I went to this great clips on Saturday. I'm like, how bad can it be? Right. Uh, and I found out like sideburns were like, one of them was like up above my ear, like actually cut into the rest of my hairline for a sideburn. The other one was curved down kind of like a, like a talon. Um, and it was like an inch lower. And then like, there was like just weird lines and like patches of longer hair just all over the place. I, I think it was like her first week on the job or something. I really don't know what was going on. Um, but Instead of trying to get her to fix it, I just, you know, paid and left, <laughs> went down the street to a, a place here uh, by USC called um, Ironically Fresh Haircuts. And it was, you know, the barbers there, everyone was was doing a pretty good job from what I could see. So if you need a haircut, go check them out. Prices seem pretty decent. Uh, but yeah, so so they fixed my hair. Uh, and I will say, like, as bad of, as a reputation as those, like, post-exchange barbers have, this was probably still the worst haircut I've ever had in my life. Uh, and my mom used to cut my hair when I was in like middle school. If that tells you anything. Like, so so let's, let's go into this a little bit. This is an interesting little insight into military life. Because I think people, what they know about the military is mostly stuff they see in movies. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, you, you turn on Full Metal Jacket and there's the like torture haircut scene, I think. And, and of course, in the army now, 
which is a mm. movie that probably if you're under the age of 30, you have not seen because it is not very good. And you have like no cultural frame of reference for who Pauly Shore is or why anyone should care who Pauly Shore is. But, but it's so good. Be- but <laughs> believe it or not, once upon a time, Pauly Shore was one of the biggest movie stars in America. A fact that is utterly inconceivable today that that would even happen. Um but it was like Adam Sandler, but 20 years ago, it's not, but I think people get Adam Sandler. He does funny characters. He does funny voices. I cannot tell you what Pauly Shore's thing was, but he was in several very high grossing movies that every one of my friends and I had to see like Biodome. Try explaining to someone today that Biodome was a financially successful theatrical release. I don't think you can, but so this was a, this was a, a kind of like a, a weird spinoff of an argument, like a, a deployment argument that we had. Cause we were, this is like uh, those movies like Talladega Nights and uh, Step Brothers, where like the premise of the movie itself is just incredibly stupid, right? Like, uh, like Tropic Thunder, but the movie itself is just like they, they, like dive headfirst into that ridiculousness and the writers are good enough to make very quotable lines and all of a sudden you have you know not necessarily like a cult following but something that is like just by the nature of its quotability now very popular because people want to see what the joke's about right, right. um so what we were deployed we were it was, it was right after um Step Brothers came out and so like you know we went to um we went to some event and some dude started singing opera and it was literally the song from Step Brothers that the dude was singing at like the, the, the Catalina wine mixer scene. And like none of us could keep a straight face. Like we were just dying in the back. All the, all the like Italian military officers were wondering what that, what we were laughing about. Um, it was, it was a very weird like time to be in Kandahar, I guess. But, you know, I think that could be part of like the Pauly Shore piece is that he knew he was typecast for ridiculousness. And so he just owned it. So the, the haircut piece, right? People imagine that if you're in the military, you've got to have the super close buzz cut. When you see me walking around on campus, my haircut is within the army regulation. Like, yeah. it is entirely within the army regulations for haircuts. No one is going to say anything to me if I'm on active duty on a base in uniform with my current haircut. We're well, also now, a lawyer, so like... You, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Very rarely do, but remember, sergeants major outrank majors general. Okay, that's that's a joke that like six people are going to get. It's not true, but it's a joke that like six people listening to this podcast are going to get. It's going to be you, me, and Stu Bryson think that that's funny. Actually, Stu won't because he was in the Marines, so he doesn't. He may or may not even have frame of reference. It's like four people. No, he'll he'll get it, and like uh, I don't know, uh, Marcos Lopez will probably get it. Okay. Maybe Tony Arispe. There, there you go. That's literally yeah. the list of people who are going to get that joke. But, you know, people think you've got to have this super short buzz cut. You can have like a normal haircut. But when you go into basic training, they give you the super short buzz cut almost as a hazing ritual. So what was your buzz cut experience? Because um, we talk about post-exchange haircuts. The post exchange for people who don't know is like a general store on the base that you shop at mainly because there's no sales tax because it's a fed, it's a piece of federal land in almost right. every case. 
So there's no sales tax. There's no real other reason to shop at the post exchange. Right. So just kind of going further into explanation, uh, military. What if there was nothing at Walmart? What if Walmart didn't have anything except chew and booze? That's pretty accurate, except for like some random like clothing that's all like military theme. Um, You know, so like you could buy, uh, you know, like proud army mom t-shirt and wear that around, but that's about it. Yeah. Uh, And, or you could buy a uh, coffee mug with the same thing. Uh, But no, so military bases are like a small city. So they have, you know, these general stores, they have golf clubs, they have all kinds of stuff. I just ripped my earbuds out of my ear. That's awesome. Um, gas stations, uh, you know, bowling alleys, all that kind of stuff. Like pretty much they're, they're, the goal was for them to be self-sustaining and it didn't used to be that big of a separation until the war on terror. And then all of a sudden we fenced off all the, all the military bases. We stopped letting people in to go see the museums, that kind of stuff. Um, and so now, now a lot of the people that are not familiar or associated with the military just don't see that side of, of what's going on. Um, but you know, invariably, like I said, there is somebody that is like their, their qualifications for being a barber are you know dubious at best. And they're sitting there cutting a hair and eventually they learn how to do a fade. Um, but like the worst one I ever had was I was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma uh, as a lieutenant. I've only been there for like six months. I'm already getting made fun of because my hair is still too short for like EOD standards, which, you know, explosive or disposal guys like to you know flaunt the rules like as close to the line as possible. Um, but I go get this haircut and this lady is like on the phone, like anger crying with her husband about something. I can't understand it because she's like yelling at him in Korean um, and she's cutting my hair and it still looked better than what this person did at the great clips across the street. Yeah. So there you've got your, your haircut recommendations for all the first years who've still not figured out the haircut situation in and around USC. Uh, just rewind, replay that, take notes on that section of the pod. And that is going to answer a lot of your questions. Um, so let's go a little bit into your background a little bit more. You said you, you grew up in mostly South Carolina and Missouri, which state were you born in? So I was born on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. Uh, I lived there for like 10 years. So both my parents are originally from the St. Louis area in Missouri, but they eventually moved to the coast, uh, the East coast. And, um, you know, so we grew up there, like my, my dad's family is all still down there and stuff. And then uh, in middle school, like right around sixth grade, uh, my family decided to you know, move back to St. Louis. My mom's parents were having some health issues, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we moved, uh, we moved to the outskirts, uh, the suburbs of St. Louis. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was a huge shock, right? So like Hitland Head Island is like a more humid version of Los Angeles for the most part. You know, like the, the weather, like never really gets below like 45 degrees. Um, you know, what they have that we don't over here is like afternoon thunderstorms and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's like a very salt marsh, like low country coastal area. Uh, and it's a resort, resort area. So like my dad was a private pilot at the time. He was flying around like the president of Kmart uh, who lived down the street from one of Michael Jordan's houses. You know, it's, it's very much like a resort town. Like everyone plays tennis and or golfs and you know like that kind of stuff and then we moved to st louis in like november and three weeks in i get get to see like my first actual snowstorm and uh i was not a fan of uh like the snow was cool but the rest of it was not cool (laughs) was that the first time you were in snow no so um i mean i've 
I've like we had gone to like a couple of uh, like ski trips, you know, like for a weekend here there when I was growing up in like the the Smoky Mountains or something. Um, every once in a while, we would get like a random flurry, uh, but like nothing that would stick on the ground in South Carolina. Um, so I've been in snow before, but like, you know, that was always tempered by the like, oh, hey, you're going to go skiing and then you're going to come inside where this giant like fire is in this, you know, whatever place and drink hot chocolate or, or something. And also I was like six. So like, how much did I really care? Um, but when you're standing at a bus stop, you know, like pelts in the face by freezing rain, all of a sudden your like life choices start, start seeming to be pretty crappy. <laughs> yeah. So um, for those of you that have never left SoCal and you're looking at to where you're going to go find a job and you, you're looking at investment banking and New York seems really cool. Just, just remember this conversation that we're having right now when you, when you start experiencing that. Why do you think I'm here? <laughs> like I got into NYU, got into USC and UCLA, mm-hmm. went to NYU for the uh, interview. It was in December, I believe. <laughs> I was like, boy, this is a great school. Everybody here is real nice. I'm going to learn a lot. I come in here. So when I was leaving the captain's career course, right? This is, uh, this is one of those professional military education things that the Army does when you get promoted. Um, I, was, uh, I had a, a battalion commander up in New York at a place called Fort Drum. It's right by the Canadian border. Uh, and they get like lake effect snow that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the guy had me on like a binding request to come take over one of his companies. And we were at a retirement ceremony and my wife, who was, uh, she lived her whole life in Little Rock, Arkansas before I, you know, took her with me on our tour of the country uh, that was paid for by the army. Um, and she was talking to this really nice lady with pigtails named Heidi about like how it was good. Uh, she was like literally going to die and like fingers are going to freeze off and maybe she'll just come visit me in the summer. She didn't know that, that was like the chief of ordinance. So this was like a, a one-star general uh, who also knew me from some like previous projects, right? Um, and she just wasn't in uniform that day. So Colonel or uh, General Hoyle still doesn't admit to doing this ever. But two weeks after that, that conversation that my wife had, my orders changed to North Carolina. <laughs> so, so I went from you know being on track to take over one of the the north like uh, northern explosive ordnance disposal companies and you know get ready to deploy to going to North Carolina and instead taking over a company that was going to turn into one of the first airborne units that you know my career field had, um, which in itself was pretty cool. Uh, it was just like a totally different like shift of experience and everything. Was this so, at yeah. Fort Bragg? Yes, it was at Fort Bragg. So I had to uh, integrate with the 82nd Airborne Division and all the ridiculousness that comes with them. Yeah, that's intense. Fort Bragg, for people who have not been there, it is, if you've ever played a video game where it was clear that the, uh, the budget allowed them to only basically make three types of trees and repeat the tree over and over <laughs> again as the, as the background, so that like you have like a forest background and it's the same three trees repeating over and over again. And that's the forest. That is what Fort Bragg looks like. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's all pine trees like everywhere. And the ground is sandy for some reason, even though you're nowhere near the coast. Um, I mean, it makes for soft landings unless you happen to be like me and just find the rocks uh, 
hashtag arthritis. Uh, it's in my, both my feet now, but you know, things happen, right? So, um, it, it got me to airborne school. That was one of the, one of my goals. And when I, you know, commissioned to the army was, Hey, I want to become a paratrooper. So it got me there. Uh, another goal was community company. So I did that at, at Fort Bragg, um, you know, finished my, uh, explosive or disposal team leader certifications, you know, worked, uh, several like secret service jobs while I was there. So like, it was a good time. Uh, but it was also like one of the most stressful, you know, periods of my career, just because I was on what's called a prepared to deploy order. So for like six months out of the year, I had to be within one hour of Fort Bragg. So if I got a phone call saying, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go to war with the country, you know, get over here, get on a plane. I had one hour from the time I received that phone call to get back to, you know, my headquarters, you know, grab my, grab my equipment, and then head over and start interfacing with whichever brigade from the 82nd that we were going to be jumping in with. Um, and then we actually had like timers counting down for some countries uh, at the time that were being kind of squirrely. So like, it was, it was a thing that, that people took very, very seriously, uh, which means that like, I couldn't go camping in the woods if there wasn't a signal there. Uh, even it didn't matter if it was only like 20 minutes from, you know, Fort Bragg, it was, it was just one of those things where like, it made it almost impossible to relax because you never really knew what you were going to get called for. Tell us what's involved in airborne school, because that is a very intense experience in and of itself. Like how long is it? What do you do? What are the qualifications to get in and to graduate? Okay. So I will say that like airborne school itself isn't extremely demanding. Uh, like physically or anything like that, you have to pass what uh, it's called the airborne PT test. It's essentially the old like physical, like APFT standards, army physical fitness test. Uh, so it's two minutes of push ups, two minutes sit ups, and a two mile run. Uh, it starts it off. All of this is done at the uh, the youngest uh, age group standard. So they want to make sure that you can run two miles in like 15 minutes and 50 whatever seconds. I kind of forget. I never really looked at the minimum. Let, uh, let's let's like, sort of give people some background on what that means because. The army right now is changing its physical fitness test. It's in the, like a nine year transition process of changing its physical fitness test. Oh, such um, a good radio. The new <laughs> test is basically a CrossFit marathon. Kind of. It's like, so it's like the CrossFit you know, I, Olympics. And the old ish. test was simple. It was two minutes of sit-ups, two minutes of push-ups, and a two-mile run. And how many push-ups, how many sit-ups, and how fast you had to run was dictated by how old you are. So you get, you know, these young, dumb and full of cum 18 year olds, they got to run fast and do a lot of push-ups and sit-ups. And as you get older, you don't have to do as many and you don't have to run so fast and airborne. You got to run like an 18 year old who just got off his high school cross country team. So when you say it's not demanding, that depends on how much you like to run. It I was mean, I don't very like demanding. Run. For some of us who were thinking about trying to do it, and I almost went until I did the SBC thing. That was the the road not taken was to go to airborne school and be a JAG for a soft unit. Mm -hmm. um, the other path was SVC, which is what I did um, for a lot of reasons that were so, mostly related to my my sort of personal life rather than anything else. But it I thought it was a very demanding set of standards because I don't like to run. I mean, I don't like to run either, but, you know, I'd, by this point, I'd also been doing it for like almost a decade. If you include the four years of ROTC uh, that I did at Arkansas when, you know, I had my scholarship and everything. Um, so I've been meeting that standard for a while. 
And, you know, like the running and stuff, it is what it is. At, at a certain point, at least in the military, you know, like I'm not going to lose a, uh, a highly stable, you know, decent paying job because I can't run two miles in under 16 minutes. Right. Um, so I'm just going to go do it. Even sure. if it like, no matter how much it sucks, eventually it just turns into a, okay, well, you know, go spend like a month running every other day and you'll be fine. Um, if you have some background in it, if you're starting from scratch, that's a whole different story. Right. Um, but yeah, so, you know, you got the, the two minutes of pushups, two minutes of two mile run. There's like 400 people taking this test in the morning and it, it starts at like three in the morning, uh, on the first day. So you know, we got like 400 people taking this test, like 60 people fail for some reason, even though they knew all these standards coming in, most of them come straight from basic training, which blows my mind. Cause these people are supposed to be in like the best shape of their life, leaving like basic training and stuff. Uh, and they are. So and by, and by know, the they, way, this is, this is 400 people basically on your high school track. Pretty much. Yeah. So, uh, they started it's just us, a track that goes around a field where you could play soccer. If anyone would put some markings on it. Um, so this was a, they had a one mile track for this one and they started us in four different spots. So we were roughly a quarter mile apart when we started, but it's still a hundred people at each starting point. Uh, and the track was only like as wide as one of the study rooms that we have up at like third floor of JKP. Right. So, I mean, you might get like three or four people across that at like the best of times. And that's, you know, discounting swinging elbows and, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we did the, uh, but so you do that PT test and if you pass that, then you go and you do a, uh, you know, a flex arm hang. And really what that's testing is, okay, well, if you have to pull down the risers, how long can you hold it? Can you, can you hold it for like at least 30 seconds and, you know, like not lose your grip and then, you know, spin out of control and slam and slam your face into the ground. Uh, spoiler, you can still slam your face into the ground, even if you are holding those things. I, I am case in point of that. Um, there's a little bit more to it. But yeah, so that, that's the physical test to get into it. And then after that, it's like one week of training crammed into three weeks. So like the, it's, you know, there's a lot of like waiting in line for things, but all you're doing is, you know, you, you spend three weeks and they're like, okay, run over here, now fall down. And they just teach you like the different ways to fall. And that's really what airborne school is, is learning how to like, you know, hook things up, uh, hook up a, a static line to a cable inside of a plane you know, get the muscle memory down to where you won't freak out when you're stepping out the door. And then, you know, what do you do when you hit the ground? And the rest of it takes like half a day to learn like, okay, you pull the risers in this direction, or, you know, you get like a, a safety brief, like what happens if you're approaching power lines? Like, well, one, you're probably not doing it right if you're approaching power lines, um, you know, but two, you know, you know, what, what, like, how do you handle that situation? And you get this brief every time you jump anyway. So they don't really spend a lot of time on it. Um, but yeah, so it, everyone in school is not super difficult. It's really just a lot of falling down. You accumulate a lot of bruises. Uh, but for me, it was vacation because I was in command at this point. So like, this was the only time during like the year and a half I was in command at Fort Bragg where I literally had to, like, I was not allowed to have my phone on me. So I wasn't answering random phone calls and text messages all day. Uh, and putting out fires, I was able to like, just turn my brain off, go run over where they told me to fall down in the gravel pit where they told me to, you know, that kind of stuff. While you were in EOD, uh, you did deploy to Afghanistan. Yeah. And yeah, I was in uh, the, well, I was all over like the Southern part of the country, but I was based out of Kandahar. Right. And uh, had an experience negotiating 
for a goat with a calculator? <laughs> yeah. So um, for, for those of you that are in core B, you probably saw that on uh, like Mark Solomon's interesting facts about people thing. That was the one that I threw out there just because I, I thought it was probably one of the funnier things I could put in like five words or less. Um, but yeah, so I was on this fob for a little while called Mezcal. Uh, I'm not sure why they, why they named it after like a, a agave drink, but I'm not going to complain about it. Uh, the problem was that this was a very small like outpost, right? The whole thing was like a football field in size. Um, and it was run by the Romanians. So I have no idea like why their deep or their dining facility stuff was so bad, but every day, no matter what meal it was, there was a corn dog, sauerkraut, and like the scrawniest fried chicken that you could possibly imagine. And that was essentially like the entirety of offerings. Like every once in a while, they would get like cookies shipped in and they would put them out there. And then you see like, you know, like we would find out like, or we'd go to dinner and we'd see these dudes walking out with like 15 cookies, like stacked together, you know, just like leaving this dining facility. And by the time we get in there, there's nothing. So, you know, we were, we were getting shipments of like protein powder and stuff just to try to like augment the food that they were serving at the time. And, um, one day we go on this, this, uh, mission that we knew was, it was going to be like a, a two or three day thing. Uh, we were, you know, there had been a, uh, uh, observation post that had gotten seated by IEDs at one point in the pretty recently. So they wanted us out there just in case, uh, something like that happened again, or they found more. Um, and so we're sitting on this, like, you know, other, like, like, uh, this backup position, you know, just kind of like waiting to be called for this, uh, this stuff. And we look over and there's this like, you know, goat herd, just like kind of going by with this, this shepherd dude or whatever they're calling goat herd. I don't know. Um, but you know, we're sitting there and, you know, random conversations happen when you're doing literally nothing but sitting in a vehicle, just like waiting for things all day and baking in the sun. So we started talking about like, you know, what's the, like the naturally conversation because we're all hungry turned into, okay, well, what's your favorite goat dish? Right. Um, and you have like the one country boy that's never been, like, he, he never ate goat or anything. Like he, he only ate like steak and potatoes his whole life. And then you get the other country boy who's like, man, I could skin anything, <laughs> you know? And so it literally turned into, okay, well, how much do you think that he would pay or that he, he would take for us to buy a goat? And the answer, and I'm pretty sure we probably could have gotten a better deal, but the answer was like 25 bucks. So, um, but yeah, so we, we got that, like the, the conversation just kind of devolved over the course, like 45 minutes. And then eventually I just like, you know, jumped on the radio, told him I was going to go out and ask the guy a question. And I, I hopped out there with the, and, and you know, walked up to the guy and, you know, really it just consisted of like pointing at a goat and then pulling out some money. And then I pulled out a calculator off of my phone and I started like plugging in numbers and, you know, the guy like, will look at it, like shake his head, like gesture wildly, and then like punching a different number. And then I look at it, I'm like, no, you know, gesture wildly punching a different number went back and forth for like five minutes and eventually like we, we, we pretty much wound up around like 25 bucks. Um, I gave them 30 just cause I couldn't break the, break the 10 I had you know, and called it a day. So I bought a goat for like 30 bucks. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we threw it in the back of the truck, which probably was a terrible idea. Now I'm thinking about it. Cause that thing made a huge mess, uh, you know, sitting in the back of that vehicle for like a day and a half with us. Um, but yeah, no, it got back to the fob. Like it got, you know, killed, butchered. 
uh, by, you know, country boy number two. And, you know, we actually wound up serving it and like having like a barbecue, um, just random, like one of the most random events probably that I've ever been a part of. I, I still really can't believe the sequence that led to it, but it was also, you know, a totally unique experience. I think you probably could have gotten a better deal because I just looked up uh, per capita GDP Afghanistan. It's about $500. So if you get out your calculator now, it's like 18 days of earnings that he got off of you guys for that one barbecue. Yeah. I mean, you got to realize though, like we, we had had, I, I kid you not, it was just corn dog, sauerkraut, fried chicken, and occasionally protein powder. We're also, you know, we're trying to win, we were trying to win hearts and minds over there. That's true. Yeah. I'm not, um, I'm and not then sure. All of our earnings were tax free. So, you know, I wasn't yeah. super upset about it. We're trying to win hearts and minds. I think we probably won his heart and his mind for that 18 days. Um, <laughs> EOD school. Tell me yes. about EOD school. So, EOD school is uh, significantly harder in pretty much every way than airborne school. Um, so, airborne school itself, like I said, was three weeks long in total. EOD school was. Uh, it, for the army, it's split into two phases. Phase one is at uh, Fort Lee, and it's like a prep course. It's ten weeks long, and then phase two is about another eight and a half uh, months down at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. So it's right by Destin. It's in the Panhandle on the coast. Uh, it would have been a great place to be if I wasn't like exhausted all the time from this thing. Um, but EOD school is probably one of the like it's one of the three most academically rigorous courses that the military has. Like all of the, all the military, not just the army. We all go to the Naval School for Explosive Warrants Disposal, um, and the the issue isn't like the difficulty of the material. The issue is how easy it is for you to mess something up. So you have to get really methodical. You got to make a lot of lists. You got to follow the list, follow the steps and procedures. Uh, you have to understand why you're doing things. So you have to be able to like identify the different types of ordinance, know what safeties go with them, and then kind of like work your way backwards through things until you uh, can like identify exactly what that item is, how to render it safe, that kind of stuff. Um, anything less than an 85% on any test is considered a fail. You get one retest and then you get sent to an Afghan review board where they determine whether or not you get to stay in school as a, like a day one restart or if you have to go find a different job. So, you know, we tested every three days. Uh, you know, anytime we started a new sequence, the uh, or new subject, the first, you know, two day or first three day series was uh, like in class. And then the next three days were practical. So if we were going over, say, um, guided missiles, right? So the first three days, we're learning about guided missiles, guidance systems, safeties that are associated with them. What are some of the unique ones that we need to look out for? Key identification features of uh, different types. Uh, how to determine if uh, one of them has like a chemical payload versus a high explosive payload, you know, how do you respond to those differently, all kinds of things, um, you know, and we get tested on them in a written uh, manner. And then the next three days, uh, we actually go out to pra practical areas and they say, hey, this one uh, failed to fire off the wing of an A-10, go render that safe. Or this one impacted the ground six hours ago, what do you do? You know, that kind of stuff. And you just kind of work through the problem. Um, so it was, like I said, just a very rigorous school. We, like, I woke up every day at like 4 a.m. Uh, I was at, um, at study hall by, or we had to, we had to check in by five study hall by five 30. I didn't get home till about seven or eight at night. 
because uh, we would finish class about 4.30, but then we had to go work out for the day because you can't do anything in the Army unless there's a workout involved somewhere. Um, so, you know, at the end of that time, you know, I was just exhausted. I would fall asleep on my couch every night at like 8.30, uh, you know, trying to have some time with my wife. And then we would go to the beach on the weekend and I'd fall asleep on the beach too. So, I mean, it, it is what it is. Um, but at the same time, like I so said, the career, the career itself I had after the school was incredible. Like, I really don't think that there's any other thing that I could have done that would have been quite as unique. Um, so it, it definitely, you know, paid dividends later on. Um, and if you got any questions about it, you can ask me, or you can ask Chris Jones, both of us went to the same school. He was like four months behind me in the, uh, in one of the Navy classes. There was a, there was a story we were talking about in the pre-interview. Mm-hmm. I think it involved uh it was basically a Yesarian situation from catch 22. Hmm. I'm trying to remember what the story wasn't there was. a guy in a tree. Oh dude. Yeah. Um, so this was my bombs test, right? This is, so, this is by the way, this is the Yesarian scene from catch 22 where he loses his mind and he's up in the tree. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is bombs, right? So I was working on, or so this is a practical test for the, the bombs, like the dropped ones, not like whatever explosive devices is made up on the ground in Afghanistan. But this is like, you know, something that is dropped from a plane, you know, typically unguided, although we do have guidance systems on some of them now. Um, and my problem was a OFAB 270, uh, like Soviet 500, or roughly their equivalent of a 500 pound bomb, it's in kilograms. Uh, I think it was 270 kilograms, so it's called 270. And um, there was some, I forget what the actual nomenclature was in the fuse. It was this old Bakelite thing. Uh, but yeah, I went out there, like it, it was pretty straightforward. There weren't any weird safety. So I was able to get the recon done pretty quick and, and do that amplification. And my render safe procedure was this thing called a, a rocket wrench, right? So a rocket wrench is one of these tools where when, at least when you're testing in school, you have to be very careful when you're putting it on because this whole thing like actually sits on this armed fuse of this bomb. And the, the whole point is there are small explosive charges in there that are, you know, facing opposite directions. And when you put it on and fire it off, the thing will spin off the fuse and just remove the, the firing mechanism essentially from the main explosive charge within the, the bomb itself. Um, but since the fuse is armed, you have to be really careful when you're putting it on there. Like if you essentially, if you put it on there hard enough to make noise when you, when you set it, uh, you, you've probably jostled the fuse enough that you could potentially set it off. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, getting, like, I have just like dug out the area around this thing to give myself a space to work. You know, I was over there, like I, I was inches away from putting this, um, you know, rocket wrench onto this fuse. And all of a sudden, like, I realized that my instructor is nowhere to be seen. And generally speaking, it's always a good idea to know where your instructor is in one of these tests. Cause like, you know, these dudes are like old squirrely. Some of them were in Vietnam. Like you never know what's going to come out of, you know, them at any given time. And as about the time I realized, I don't know where this guy is. And I'm holding this rocket wrench right over the fuse, like some, some leaves and like twigs come like trickling down, like the back of my head from above me. So I like pull back a little bit, roll over, look up. And this dude had literally climbed a tree and he was like laid across this big old branch, like right over top of me, eating an apple and just like watching me work. And, you know, and I'm just like, hey, bud, uh, what's up? He's like, hey, don't worry about me. I'm, you're good. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> you know? So uh, I started to finish the test 
Don't worry. Um, it's nothing weird. I'm just in a tree looking down on you for no particular reason. Yeah, nothing weird, right? Just relax um, and act normal. Yeah, so believe it or not, that actually was not a red flag uh, that I was failing. It's a red flag when you look up and there's like five instructors around you because at that point, they're like making notes about every way that you jacked up and you're turning into a joke for them. Um, so as long as it was just one guy and he was just doing his own weird thing, I was okay, right? Uh, but anyway, so like I, I go, I put the thing down, I finish my, I finish my problem. Uh, you know, the instructor comes out of the tree, you know, gives me a high five and, you know, said, all right, cool. You know, go head back, get some water. Cause it's, you know, this summer in Florida and everyone's sweating everywhere. Right. And about the time I, I like that happens, I hear this exclamation that I'm actually not going to repeat it just cause it was incredibly offensive to a very large number of groups of people <laughs> um, from the, the pit, like two, two down. Uh, but it, it, it involved like, you know, sexual acts in the church with like four different denominations of people. Um, so anyway, yeah, the instructor goes, Oh, that sounds interesting. I'm going to see what's going on. And I look over and there's like three different instructors just all heading to that one pit to see what's happening. And I'm like, Ooh, oh man, private value just messed up. All right. I'm going to go back. Cause I can't help him. You know? And, and that was it. Right. So it was, it was just a weird like a weird day. Um, but hey, things happen. So I, I mentioned that, like, if I should probably mention, you know, and it, it may not need to be said, but if you're willing to go and like put your hands on an explosive device like that, you're, there's probably something a little bit wrong with you to begin with. And then these guys just like, just let it out. <laughs> so um, yeah, it, it makes for a, a, a very interesting time, at least when you're around them. You also had uh, another interesting job in the army. I think it was after doing EOD work where you worked in recruiting. Yeah. So, um, so let, let's, let's skip to the fun part here. Okay. Because the fun part is what happens at MEPS. And for people who don't know, if you join the army, you go to MEPS, which stands for Medical Entry Processing System. Is that it? Uh, it's military entry processing station. Okay. I'll, I yeah. almost had it. <laughs> One of the things about the military is there's a ton of acronyms and we don't even bother to remember what they stand for a lot of the times. So you say MEPS, everybody knows MEPS. Um, yeah. The, the issue is with the acronyms, like you can have the same acronym mean different things in different parts of the organization. Yes. So like the first report I got when I showed to recruiting was an EOD report. And I'm like, yes, I always knew we were special. It's sort of for end of day, not explosive or disposal. So yeah. yeah, that just like crushed my special dreams. Um, but MEPS is where you go when you first sign up to make sure that your body works correctly. And by make sure that your body works correctly, I don't mean like you're strong and fit and fast. I mean, really rudimentary stuff. Your joints bend in the direction they're supposed to bend. There's nothing that's broken. You can see in here, you don't have anything in your medical records that you've admitted to that uh, is going to get you thrown out. You know, your recruiter carefully told you what not to put on the form. You have seen some <laughs> wild stories at MEPS of why people failed out on the day. Because at the end of the day in MEPS, my recollection is you sign right there. So, um, yeah, so like the, the recruiters aren't supposed to coach people through, but they some people will. Um, Boy, do they. 
Yeah. The, As a Jag, kind of, boy, I can tell you, they sure do. Oh, yeah. No, so it, it depends. Like, every, you know, the, the numbers for military enlistment are ridiculous, and the pressure put on them is, is a lot. So depending on the command climate within their organization, if, you know, the, the morals start to slip in favor of numbers, then you'll get people that, you know, John has to deal with as like a prosecutor or whatever, right? Um. This is a lesson so, for business, by the way. You see this with General Electric and why they went under. Is managers set unrealistic targets. The subordinates find a way through accounting chicanery to meet the targets, but eventually it catches up with you and people realize, oh, you have no cash in General Electric. Yeah, hashtag Enron. Um, but yeah, so uh, there's waivers for all kinds of things, right? So as a commander, I'm sitting here like, oh, well, I could have just done like one interview and a memo, and this would have been fine. Uh, but at MEPS, you know, they do everything from like a, a drug screening, they get fingerprints for like legal things. You know, they go through a full physical, um, you know, it's, it's a, a full day's worth of stuff, but most of it's just sitting around. Uh, but you get the weirdest things. And the reason that I, I personally wasn't a fan of people, like no matter how bad we were doing that month, trying to like, you know, essentially lie somebody's way in, is because um, we would get invariably like the applicant on the floor would get like, you know, diarrhea of the mouth and start saying all the things that they were told not to say. Right. And then, you know, now it turns into an investigation where the recruiter can't do recruiting things until he's cleared. Um, You know, like the person can't enlist no matter if they're, if we can get all their paperwork done, it's just a mess. Right. Uh, But no matter how hard we try to find everything, stuff still comes out. So like I had a kid whose dad was an ATF agent, like, you know, piss hot at maps. Like just, he had just ridiculous levels of THC in the system, you know? And, you know, so we brought him back and the recruiter that drove him back didn't know the kid's dad was an ATF agent or not an ATF, uh, DEA. It was DEA. It was, so it was even worse. Um, but so he didn't know. So the dad's like, Oh, what you, know, I thought you were going to listen today. What happened? And the recruiter goes, get so much weed in this system. They wouldn't let him, um, you know, and you know, this, this kid just like turned ghost white, like, you know, things like that. Um, and that happens. Like, uh, you get, you get dudes that like, uh, they, they show up and the meth doctors, like there's something wrong with your balls, you know, and, and they find out or people find out that they have HIV or that they're pregnant. Uh, through the blood test, like those things happen. And if, especially the blood tests are awkward because if those come back, then, and, you know, and they're pregnant or they have HIV or something like that, we are not allowed to tell the people what's going on, but we have to drive them back. So they get this like awkward three to a half hour car ride where we can't tell them why they're going back to MEPS, just they have to go. And then we get an even more awkward, like three and a half car ride back after they get the news from the doctor. So and, and uh, they said Theranos never figured out how to do instant blood tests. <laughs> um, so the uh, I mean, it, it's we have a somewhat instantaneous version uh, that you dip a thing in. It takes a couple minutes, but it'll give you a read back or fee, uh, a reading. And then if that reading comes back positive, it goes to a lab for confirmation. But the you know, you also get people, which I think was a story John was referring to uh, that you know, they see things on the wall, like, you know, lying to us is like, you could get you like, you know, X number of years in prison or, you know, $10,000 fine or something like that. And so all of a sudden, like they shut down. So like, 
they've told us constantly, oh, I don't do drugs. I don't have anything in my system. And then they go to go to pee in a cup. Like, I'm not doing it. I, I can't. I, I I don't need to pee today. I, I didn't need to pee yesterday either. It's weird. Um, I didn't have anything to drink today. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, can't drink. And, I got a sore throat. Sorry. <laughs> so we had this girl. I, I kid you not. Her name was Diamond. Um and she showed it. Just guess what her her occupation was, and you'd be right, probably. Um, her her manager's name was like, yeah, it was something equally ridiculous, like ginger, cinnamon, or something. Um, who was one of her references? So it just made like a really interesting interview, right? Uh, but anyway, so she goes to Meps, and the first thing they do in the morning is they take the drug test, and she says, and so they they say, if you've done any of this stuff, just you know, like tell us, don't take the test, whatever, because if they take the test and fail, they're disqualified for the rest of their life. So this bless her heart, this girl Diamond raises her hand and says, So I don't do coke, but my boyfriend might have sprinkled some on his junk, and then I gave him BJ, and then we had sex. So does that mean it's in my system? Which, you know, now they've said that and it's on official record everywhere. And so, you know, this, I, I start getting angry phone calls at like 6.30 in the morning from my boss asking what the hell I'm doing. Because <laughs> this thing is happening. Um, and I have to explain how I didn't know that this person had like, you know, coke sex with her boyfriend. Um, and why that wasn't a question we asked during the interviews or something. It, 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 the ridiculousness of this thing just goes like all, all throughout the day um so but hey she she went back and uh, like two days later and tested and she didn't have coke in her system so uh, i don't know things happen uh, and then john uh, probably put her out of the army like six months later a valuable <laughs> member of the service to this day uh actually no actually, i don't know what happened to her there are some people though that we we didn't like we did not expect them to make it through basic training and next thing we know that we're getting like you know, phone call like, Hey, I just made specialists. Like, Whoa, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I almost had to prosecute my own recruiter. That's the guy who recruited me had was part of a big scandal where he, a bunch of recruiters were giving bonuses to people who very much did not qualify for those bonuses. Oh, was that on the national guard side? It was on the national guard side. This was a national yeah. guard recruiting scandal. And, uh, he, the guy who recruited me knew all these guys and was smart enough to become a, a state's witness. It's like, you wouldn't believe the terrible things were that I'm just learning about this myself. I'm as outraged as you are. I was like, yeah, you're the only smart one to turn around and, and testify. At least you knew to do that. Um, oh, man. And, and he, he managed to uh, end up on the right side of that scandal. Uh, so good for him. He's probably still in and doing great. He's probably a general now. Um, Speaking of scandals, uh, do you remember the uh, the Columbia Secret Service thing that happened where like the dude didn't pay his hooker and then it turned into this like international incident? This was like, oh yes, 12, 13 years ago. Yes. Yeah. So my my first sergeant when I got to Oklahoma was on that mission, <laughs> and and he he apparently just wasn't in that hotel. Uh, so that is the only reason why he didn't like get fired was because he, he wasn't in the hotel where all that stuff was happening, but he was on that, that mission in Columbia with that secret service group. Um, and they, they just ran out of rooms and put him somewhere else. <laughs> there you go. So things um, happen, man. 
I like to sort of draw out from people's background what the big leadership lesson that they've taken from all this is. And, uh, you know, you mentioned during the pre-interview the difference between expectation and accountability in the Army versus everywhere else. Yeah, so um, accountability, is a, accountability is a big word in the Army, and we're not just talking about, like, financial things. Um, so, like, as a, as a leader in the military, you're expected to know your people on like a very personal level. Um, and you're also expected to know exactly where they are at any given time. So, you know, for example, going back to my days at Fort Bragg on the prepare to deploy orders, uh, I wasn't the only person that was on a one hour recall. It was like my entire organization. So if people were taking a vacation, I had to know exactly how many people in my company were gone, where they were, how long it would take them to get back, what a recall plan was. Um, I also had to know if they had like marital issues, if a person got a DUI, we were bailing them out of jail. Um, if they were having a domestic incident, you know, we were supposed to go separate the, you know, the soldier from the situation, put him in a barracks room overnight. Um, we were helping people like build their personal finances because like there's this stereotype of privates going out and buying like a, a V6 Mustang for 26% interest. And it's absolutely true. Like it, it happens. So for, it happens frequently enough that the stereotype exists for a reason. Um, so like we're helping people build finances, uh, if creditors are calling, you know, they can call me at my office and now I have to like do security clearance, you know, paperwork on whether or not this person is still viable for their clearance. Cause they, they can't pay their bills. Um, uh, you know, if there's like a custody battle going on, I got to figure that out. Uh, but then we're also like investigators. So like, you know, uh, lots of wrongdoing things were going on uh, or if any, any possible expectation of wrongdoing, if it's not like outright criminal, chances are an officer is going to investigate it for the army to determine whether or not that, you know, the, that incident was uh, substantiated or not. Um, so I, I've investigated all kinds of stuff. Um, and then occasionally we're like the DA in that we press court martial charges for people. So that was like the first thing I did at Fort Bragg actually was, like, uh, so I, I didn't even know this was going on until I took command, but like I, I took command of the organization in a ceremony. I went upstairs to sign like the official paperwork and there was a lawyer, like a, a smaller, nerdier version of John sitting on my desk, um, you know, with this, this like giant packet. And he's like, hey man, so one of your senior NCOs is accused of raping one of your lieutenants. Here's the paperwork. Do you want to press court order charges now or you want to do it later? And, I, and so like my first like three hours in command were spent re, you know, going through that and looking at the evidence and deciding whether or not I was going to send this person to a trial of his peers, right? So um, it was just, you know, the, the amount of accountability that we have with people, like if they don't show up in the morning, we just aren't like, oh, just mark his timesheet. You know, like we, we are calling like morgues, we're calling hospitals, police stations, we're trying to figure out exactly where this person is. Um, so like the, the amount of accountability that we have for that kind of Unless stuff. Unless you're at or, Fort Hood. If you're at Fort Hood, you don't really do anything. <laughs> uh, well, if your command had done it right, then that's a different thing. But if they had done it right, they probably wouldn't have gotten fired anyway. And so, somebody might be alive, maybe. Yeah. Also, so, also an important thing that would be different. I don't know if she would have been alive judging by like the, the, how the sequence of events played out from that investigation. I did get a copy of that for, uh, as like a, I don't know why I got it, but I did. It, it was like a case study thing in use rec when I was at, uh, teaching at the college. Um, but they would have found out about it, you know, more than like 
a month later or whatever it was when she was finally reported missing and it wasn't even she was reported missing by her command you know it was by like her family that hadn't heard from her so but like i had a guy that didn't show up one day and we spent two hours calling every police station morgue and hospital and like mental health facility within like a hundred miles. And before people think that, Oh, Hey, they don't, they don't have to tell me whether or not he's there. The military doesn't play by those rules. Like if I say I'm the commander, they have to tell me like, they don't have to tell me what he's being treated for, but they have to tell me if he's there or not. So like, you know, the people like uh, the amount of things that people sign away to when they join the military is ridiculous. And the amount of power that I had as a commander was absolutely like obscene. Like at the end of the day, I did not have to let people go home. I could just tell them to stay there. Now I'm not going to do that because that's like a giant douchebag move. Um, but you know, technically, people going home at the end of the day is what the military considers pass, and I don't have to approve it as a commander. I could just say, "Hey, we have work to do, so stay." And technically, they have to do it. Um, it's just like I said, just ridiculous. Uh, so part of like part of me getting out of the military was just not having to deal with that anymore. It was like a, just a huge plus in that column. So we're going to do a quick break to uh, advertise a C4C event. C4C is hosting an event with Junior Achievement on November 12th from 8.30 to 1.30. It is a Zoom event. You can sign up. What they're doing is they're helping high school students understand the college application process, help them with applications, with financial aid, day in the life opportunities, and those volunteer hours count towards uh, the qualification for C4C weekend, which is a very fun event. So if you're interested in doing C4C weekend, this is a great way to get some time and help some kids uh, get ready for the college application process. All right, back to Aaron. Aaron, how do you get a bomb through an airport? Um, I mean, carefully. So I'll, I will say the scanners they have are typically very good, but a scanner is only as good as the person that operates it, right? So you gotta, you have to understand one, what, what the scanner is going to pick up and then how, but I would say that chances are you're not going to be able to get it through as a full device. So, you know, if it was me, I would piecemeal it through. Um, but I'm also not going to tell you guys exactly how, just because I'm pretty sure I'm already on at least one watch list and I don't want to get put on more. So, um, but this hey, was a thing, this was a thing that you worked on a little bit, it, right? When you were doing EODs. Yeah. So every once in a while, especially the people that are like co-located with some of the bigger airports, like, um, Fort Campbell is near uh, Nashville. It's pretty close to Nashville, right? You know, like they would go and, or uh, Colorado Springs would go, or the, was it Fort Carson at Colorado Springs? People would go there and go to some of the bigger airports like Denver or something. Um, but they would go and they would essentially make like a, a mock device and see if they can sneak it through. Um, and, you know, all the TSA people, they aren't, you know, bomb techs. So they might not recognize everything, but they're, they're told to look for certain key ID things. Um, you know, and then if they find anything squirrely, like really squirrely, there are, you know, uh, specialist agents at the airport that are usually people that came from a career field, just like mine, um, and retired from the military and decided they wanted to keep doing it for like the TSA. Um, so like, why there, have, there two, why have one it. pension when you can have two? Exactly. Um, but like, if you're wondering why they limit you to three ounces of material of like, you know, shampoo when you're in your travel kit, this is why, you know, because like you'd be surprised what you can make with only a couple of ounces of the right chemicals 
Um, and you don't even need to measure them out that carefully to be, to be completely honest. Like there, there's this thing called a shot glass method, which I'm not really not going to talk about any more than that. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, like you can you can be surprised what you can make with the right chemicals and just like mixing mixing essentially shot glass size amounts. Um, so that's why you're limited to like three ounces uh, of material is it's, it's a, uh, explosive thing. Let's do some fun questions. Not that this hasn't been fun so far, but we have the fun question section so that in the future, when I finally have a boring guest, there will at least be one segment of the podcast that's listenable. Uh, hey, this is USC. I'm sure you won't have a boring guest. Everyone's, everyone's got something. Uh, somebody wants to spend the full hour talking about their golf game, maybe. Um, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Ooh. Uh, so this is a movie called Bug. So when I was in high school, I worked in a movie theater, right? Uh, it's Warenberg movie theaters. It's like a very small Midwest chain. Um, every movie starts with this like creepy echoey whisper thing. Um, yeah, it, it's, 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 you know, a little bit insane. Uh, at least the people I worked with are cool, but there was this movie Bug. And out of, I, I worked there every, every year throughout high school and then like in the summers through college. And this is the only movie that I, I had ever like would go into where can like the movie would end and like half the audience would just get in this uproar. Like what the fuck did we just pay for? <laughs> so um, like every once in a while, like you'll get like claps or something like that when the movie ends. I really don't know why they're applauding a screen when the people aren't like, there to receive it it always seemed kind of weird to me um but this is the only time where people like actually got angry about it so uh this movie bug is essentially like a bad acid trip is what happens like these, these people you know start like taking some questionable substances and have this bad trip and they think like these bugs are trying to get them and they they start like freaking out and they turn their this like hotel room and they like wallpaper like the whole thing and like aluminum foil and like set up bug zappers and it's really just them freaking out for like an hour and a half or whatever it is like absolutely horrible there is no point to it there's no plot like you keep thinking it's building towards something and then the movie ends and you really didn't know what they were building toward to begin with <laughs> so uh yeah, that bug has got to be the worst. Um, Hurt Locker is probably number two, unless like I'm trying to impress somebody in a bar, then I'll say Hurt Locker is, has got to be like you know uh, the best thing ever. Uh, but it, yeah, I was going to ask you your opinion about the Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker, people do not realize this in the military. It is a a very it's a it's a movie that generates some takes. You can get some takes if you ask military people about the Hurt Locker. Oh, man. So I have some I, takes about the Hurt Locker. I can't imagine how many you have. Oh, yeah. So the Hurt Locker, for those of you who don't know, is a, a movie that's supposed to like loosely be based on explosive war and disposal work, kind of like what Chris and I were doing. It won Best um, Picture. I don't know why. So, like, at one point, this dude decides that he's just going to, like, walk off of this, like, giant military installation in Afghanistan or wherever he was and, like, go start, like, interrogating people and then, like, just wearing a hoodie with, like, a sidearm and then just, like, walk back in and tell people he found a brothel. And, like, everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's plausible. Like, no, absolutely not. Like, the only, the only person I knew that walked off a military installation like that was uh, one of the lieutenants that was in my company. It wasn't even the base I was at. He just got lost, which if you're in the military and you know anything about lieutenants, 
That is 100% plausible. This dude just got lost and walked off post. Um, but one of the gate guards saw him and just started like screaming at him until he came back. And then he had to answer like a bunch of stupid lieutenant questions uh, about like, what, what were you thinking? How'd you do that? You know, that kind of stuff. And then they realized that, hey, this, there's like this whole gate that's just open. Maybe we should probably shut that at some point. Uh, which, so if you guys think that like everything in the military is all squared away, that right there should just tell you like everything you need to know. Uh, that, and if anything says military grade run, because like our Humvees have less than 30,000 miles on them, they probably had like the power change in place four times. So, you know, just a thing. Um, but yeah, so like the Hurt Locker, uh, there's so many just like random like things that just do not make sense. Um, I will say from an EOD standpoint, it's very good at making us look cool and not actually giving away our tactics, techniques, and procedures for things, which, you know, as somebody who deployed after that movie came out, I was very grateful uh, for, but at the same time, um, yeah. So the guy there, I actually know the, or have met the guy that was like the advisor for that movie. And he has been the butt of like so many jokes in our career field. It's ridiculous because like, there's like the, the first scene, there's a guy like just reaches down and grabs like this bundle of, of debt cord. Uh, and they're, they're just like wired into these, you know, artillery rounds somehow. Like those rounds that guy pulled out were essentially like one five, five millimeter rounds. Those things are like a hundred pounds each. He pulled like six of them. So you aren't just going to do that with one hand and like, you know, assuming that everything even holds together, which is a, a huge if. You aren't going to do it with one hand. And then that's also probably like the single least safe action that you could possibly do in that situation would just be like pulling random shit by, or by hand off the ground. So like the, the amount of things that this, that this movie got wrong was just truly impressive. Um, but hey, apparently Hollywood liked it because it did get like best picture. So, I mean, if I'm in a bar and trying to impress somebody, I'm like, yeah, it's exactly like that. Like 100%. <laughs> the the wandering off base like we've we've suddenly drifted out of a military movie and into like charles bronson's death wish uh, when when that happened in the movie i was already like maybe not quite buying the crazy cowboy saves everybody when in reality the crazy cowboy gets everybody killed um but when he just wanders into town in the middle of the iraqi insurgency and it's just like a white guy knocking on doors. And it's perfectly safe. I, 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 I just, the suspension of disbelief was totally gone. No, it's totally so, gone. The so only, real, the only realistic like, thing about it is at the end where he secretly wants to go back and doesn't know how to tell his family that he actually doesn't want to stay. He wants to go back. That was a thing that was actually interesting and insightful because I know that there are people who have at various points have felt sort of like that. Well, I mean, yeah. So if you think about it, like people that have trained and never deployed, it's like being a like varsity all American athlete and never actually playing another team. Um, you know, so like you spend all this time, this energy, this effort, you know, you, you are ingrained in this like work and society. And then you never actually like get to use what you, you know, were trained for in, in real life. It, it's, so there's that, uh, if you deploy, there's like a simplicity to it because you know, you know, what you're supposed to be doing there. You aren't dealing with all kinds of just random, like, you know, taskers. Like if somebody's like, hey, fill out this PowerPoint by like 4 p.m. You're like, hey, sorry, I got a mission. So no, 
and, and like the and the people are like oh okay cool like there's a like the the logical simplicity of of being deployed and like the very like straightforward train of thought that you could have there it is fantastic um and then i was everything I was lucky everything you to, do, everything you do matters you know why it matters and there's never a day where it's like oh your auto insurance didn't renew cuz the company just didn't cash the check you mailed yeah so I will say that I was I was lucky enough to like never be in a firefight. My wife is eternally grateful for this fact. Um, I I had like the good fortune or bad fortune, however you want to look at it. Of I would show up and an area that was like previously like hopping would all of a sudden just go dead for like weeks. And then I would leave and my team would like all of a sudden pick up like a bunch of missions. So like I mean I still ran missions. We we did a hundred com- like plus combat ops while I was out. Um, but like if we found an ID, it wasn't like somebody was sitting there like waiting to blow it on us or if they were, we had jammed the signals and there, there wasn't a big RC threat in the area anyway. So um, they're pro- the chances of us actually jamming the signals and having it be that type of, that type of uh, IED was pretty nil. Um, but like, you know, we're really good at taking apart IEDs, right? So we're, that, that's a thing. Um, but the people I do that have been in firefights you know, they, it's like a type of another side of this, like a type of adrenaline rush that you can't get anywhere else, right? So, you know, some of the people that were in a lot of those combat situations, if they aren't like scarred for life by it uh, in, in some way, shape or form, then, you know, the adrenaline side of it is, is another thing that they're going to have to contend with is, you know, so how do they control, you know, not doing that anymore? Um, so like the, the psychological effects of combat are, are pretty real. Uh, there are some books that, that do cover it. There's been a lot of like behavioral health, you know, studies and, um, treatments and stuff that have been developed over the last like 20 years of, of, you know, war in the Middle East that are geared toward, you know, treating and helping people work through a lot of this stuff. Um, but I will say that, like, me personally, if I was given the, the option of, hey, do you want to take your EUD company and, you know, keep, like, jumping out of planes and doing what you're doing, or do you want to stop doing this and go overseas, I would have taken them overseas in a heartbeat. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those things where, like I said, at the end of the day, there, there's nothing like being deployed. Um, and that says nothing of, like, the financial impact. Like, before we deployed, I was actually, like, my wife hadn't hadn't uh, been able to find work in Oklahoma because I don't know if you've ever been to Lawton, but like everything about the place sucks. Um, so right when we were leaving, she had like just started working. It had been like nine months uh, before she found a job. And my wife has a master's degree, by the way, if that tells you anything. So she was usually overqualified for the work that she was applying for and they, they knew it. So they wouldn't hire her for, for a lot of it. They wouldn't even take her, like get her to an uh, interview. Um, but eventually she found some work and, you know, we were able to start like having more than just one paycheck on things. But when we deployed, all of a sudden I'm drawing has duty pay. Uh, everything's tax-free, you know, we're spending significantly less money because only she's the only one commuting and paying, you know, like for gas and that kind of stuff. Um, so next thing I know, like I've paid off, you know, my truck while like halfway through deployment and her student loans get paid off and like i come back home and we actually have like savings where i can put like down payments on getting her a car that actually has air conditioning 
for the first time in like five years, you know, like that kind of stuff. So like the, the financial impact of, you know, being deployed is another thing that people will look for. So there, there's a lot of reasons why people want to deploy again, if they've done it or want to deploy for the first time, if they haven't. Um, but a huge part of it's also just like the psychological piece that we were talking about earlier. So this is supposed to be a lightning round. And then we started talking oh. about Hurt Locker and it was not very lightning. What's a music oh. you like that you're embarrassed to like? Ooh, Taylor Swift. That's the second time in a row someone has said that. Oh, so, oh, and Katy Perry. So uh, we, I used to do- There's these, no, By um, the way, there, this is a hard disagree. There is no reason to not to be embarrassed for liking Taylor Swift, who is a living legend. Thank you very much. That's oh, my no, She is fantastic. Um, and I had this dude, Leo, uh, that was one of my team sergeants. Uh, so the guy was lactose intolerant, but refused to stop drinking milk. Right. So we were deployed and I would like walk into his room to get him for something. And he had like five Taylor Swift posters in the wall. She's like, oh, hey, Taylor Swift. And then you're hit with the stench. Like he has just permeated everything with his like butt funk. And it is just absurd. Like you start gagging. You have to like start wafting the door, trying to clear it out, you know, and eventually you just like stand outside and yell at him through the doorway. Um, like, it, yeah. So like Taylor Swift, like the, her, her music, um, we, we did, I, I ran so many problems and stuff with like her music playing in the background in the truck or whatever. Um, but then Katy Perry was another one that, that we started doing uh, just to mess with people. Cause like uh, we went to like JRTC and every time we'd, we'd start a mission, we would play a, uh, a Katy Perry song over like the speakers, like through the radio with like all the infantry guys that were supposed to be our security just to mess with them. Um, so so those two kind of like that it's, it's ridiculous, but I, I will listen to them if nothing else just for nostalgia. Favorite Taylor Swift album. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so now you're asking for specifics and that's not that good. <laughs> I honestly don't, I'm not good with like names of songs or even really like movies unless I've seen them enough. So you like it, but you don't like it enough that you can like distinguish between Red and 1989 and Reputation. You're just like, ah, eh, that's good. It's yeah, a good song. No. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I'm that way with most things. Like, I, I don't know like the names of albums for most music. So for all of our like musically inclined people like, you know, Todd and Owen, I'm very sorry. Um, I know I've let you down. What's the last book you've read? Ooh. Um... Not for the MBA program. I'm going to have to look at the name. Uh, so it's, uh, I can tell you the author, his name's Kevin Hearn. It's a, a sci-fi book series, but this dude is, it's, it's like urban type stuff. I want to, I want to say it's like inconsiderable. Uh, but this dude has like some of the best, like sarcasm, you know, writing style I've ever seen. Like he goes on this rant about like raisins and scones for a solid, like 10 minutes in his first book in this series. And like it, it's like some it, it's it's pretty solid like the it's definitely something that like I'll, I'll read you know at night just just because I want to like wind down at the end of the day or whatever. Uh, favorite place you've been? Ooh. Um, hmm. Depends on what I'm looking for. Like as far as beer goes, I'd say Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville, North Carolina has the highest density per like square mile of breweries in the world. I, can, uh, I just, what, can I just say that is the most MBA student answer I think you could imagine. <laughs> I could do this podcast for a hundred years. 
I could never get a more MBA student answer to. What's your favorite place you've been then? Well, from a beer standpoint. <laughs> um, for At the same time, there's no place like low country, South Carolina, like Hilton Head. Um, I relax every time I go home there, no matter what the traffic's like. You know, so being there, like uh, I usually have a good time when I go home or at least go to that part of South Carolina. My home's in like St. Louis now, but still. What's the place you haven't been that you want to go? Um, I mean, I haven't been like to the, so I, I want to do like a cruise in the Mediterranean. Um, my only experience in Europe has been like Spingdalem Air Force Base in Trier, uh, which is like 40 minutes outside of Spingdalem. Uh, so fl- flying out to Afghanistan and flying back, um, flying out, we only stayed the night in Germany. Uh, and we didn't leave the base flying back. They put us in a hotel in Trier for a day. And, uh, you know, part of this like accountability leadership thing for the army, I wound up actually like chasing dudes down from bar to bar all night and like pulling them out of strip clubs and stuff because, you know, they came out of deployment. Um, so they were trying to get into like as much trouble as they could in like the, the 24 hours before they boarded a plane. Um, but yeah, so you know, I really want to explore like Europe and the Mediterranean and the like that whole area, that whole region. I think that would be really cool. Uh, I just haven't done it. As far as the U.S., uh, Yellowstone. I haven't been up to let's see like Old Faithful or any of the uh, the like northern national parks. Your experience at Marshall so far. You had you ever been to L.A. before coming to Marshall? Los Angeles, no. Um, so like about a month before school started my wife and I came down we looked at houses uh and stuff and tried to find one we did not by the way um but you know that was that was the my only experience with the Los Angeles before we actually started the program so like I you know I recruited in Fresno you know I was all over the Central Valley and San Francisco Bay and that kind of stuff uh up to like Sacramento but I didn't really spend much time in SoCal there were there's like a, a long weekend that Kelsey and I spent in San Diego and that was about it so, no, Los Angeles is new, uh, but I will say that I, I've really enjoyed the experience. I haven't gotten to explore as much of the city as I would like yet, um, but, like, our classmates are, are fantastic. Uh, if anybody ever, like, doubts that, just trust me. I've worked with all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Our classmates are great. Um, you know, the, like I said, there's, there's a couple here and there that, like, you know, every once in a while you're like, ooh, they just said something and every once in a while, I know I'm one of them. So sorry about that. Um, but by and large, like, you know, you can have a conversation with our classmates and not want to punch them in the face. Like, and I'll, I'll say that about pretty much every single one of them. So that's, what a compliment. that's, like a, that's a solid start, right? What a compliment uh, but, <laughs> guys. This guy loves his classmates. He hardly like, ever wants to punch them in the face. Um, no, but I, I will say like, you can walk up to somebody and have a random conversation and be just fine. Uh, our alum, you like, I have yet to have any of our alum, like not respond to like a LinkedIn thing. Uh, as long as you like send a personal invite, if you just like send a random connect, they may not get to it. Um, but like, if you send an email or whatever, you ask for like a coffee chat, you know, our, our, our alumni network's fantastic. Our professors have been great to talk with the, the people have. Um, so being here at USC has been just a great experience overall. 
Speaking of great experiences, we've got another trivia night coming up on Wednesday uh, the 10th. So this Wednesday should be right after this episode drops, basically within 36 hours probably of this episode going live. It's from five to six at the study hall, same place as last time. And uh, Megan Rucker, the social chair, would like you to get competitive. So I would say work on some ways to cheat, maybe bring in a ringer, maybe bribe somebody on another team to take a dive and get some questions wrong. It should be fun. Go to the study hall Wednesday, five to six for trivia night. Um, before you came to Marshall, Aaron, you went to college in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Yeah. What, what college did you go to? So I went to Arkansas State University. So it's like not even the big college in Arkansas, right? It's like the second biggest school, which, you know, so I think the entire student body at the time was like 25,000 people. Um, so it, it was a decent size, but it was still a smaller state school. Um, and then if you if you were in Jonesboro at the time, you realize like there was nothing there. Like there was one club called the Electric Cowboy. It's just as bad as you probably imagine from the name if you've never been in one. Um, and then like the so it was also in a dry county, which I didn't know when I agreed to go there and started paying for it. So like. I got pretty decent at like smuggling like alcohol from the county line. Also, there's not really a whole lot of like skill involved. You just like go across the county line and buy it and then drive it back. Um, but, this is, this you know, is it, an important point. For the people who sign up for the C4C junior achievement thing, tell these kids to research their schools. And when I say that, I mean, really research them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I wound up going there just because they had scholarships. So uh, I had a couple of schools offer me scholarships, one thing or another. This one offered me two, uh, so I took them up on it. Um, but it was it was still a great experience overall. I learned a lot. I liked the people I was with. Uh, met my wife while I was there, you know. So I, I can't really say too much bad about it. Uh, I will say, like the biggest employer out there was a, a you know agricultural center called the Priceland. Um, if you guys really want to know what kind of place it was, that that probably sums it up. Uh, you were into antiquing, you told me? <laughs> no. So, um, no. So, uh, antiquing is a, a prank. It's not like buying like an old clock from like a, a pawn shop or, or whatever. Um, so, I was actually late to my first ever college final because of this crap. Um, so, antiquing is a, a thing. And what it is, is like, you know, if somebody dude's like sleeping on the couch or in this, in this case, my roommate sleeping in his bed, uh, some dudes will like show up with like a handful of baby powder and just like start like throwing it in his face. And you can actually compact baby powder pretty decently if you guys haven't tried this, especially if your hands are kind of sweaty like my, you know, other roommate Jeff's. Um, just weird fact about Jeff, you probably didn't want to know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so they, uh, they show up and they essentially like just start fleeing like pre-made snowballs of baby powder at this dude in his sleep. Um, and this is like midnight, you know, already. So, and my final starts at eight. So I'm like, fuck it. You know, it is what it is. Um, but they, they run back through the bathroom and lock the door and they're giggling on the other side. while while my, my roommate Adam just got antiqued is, is, you know, covered in baby powder, trying to break down the door. Um, and eventually after like 10 minutes, I'm like, Adam, just, just go get even. And he's like, okay, you know, and I, I'm thinking he's just going to get back to them like the next day. No, this dude like puts on some like, you know, pants and, you know, boots and drives and goes out to his truck. And he had this ridiculous lifted like diesel pickup truck with like a, a sound kit on it and like 
a smokestack. And it, it was just like the most like rednecky absurd thing. Like the only thing he was missing was like a giant stars and bars flag, like being flown from the back of this thing. Right. Um, but anyway, so he, he goes to the Walmart and gets like a five pound bag of flour and a five pound bag of sugar. Cause apparently they only had one bag of flour at the thing. And he dumps the sugar all over one of the, like the only dude's car out there, which I'll get to that in a minute. Cause that, that was like this like four cylinder Honda Civic that the guy tried to race like every week. And I don't think he ever won once. Um, and then, you know, he shows up uh, with like a, a, a screwdriver and this five pound bag of flour and uses the screwdriver to break through the, the lock. And next thing I know, like I'm asleep by this point. And I, and next thing I know, I hear this like, high-pitched squeal from one of my roommates and the other one yells he's in and then there's this like massive like thuds just happening all over the place and like you know so i go in there and like adam's got like both of these dudes in like headlocks and like there's flour all over the room you know and they're just wrestling back and forth and they actually wind up like moving this into my room and like breaking my alarm clock which I didn't realize at the time, but it, you know, eventually like we stopped the fight, you know, everyone back to bed. I woke up an hour late for my first ever college final and <laughs> had, had to run across campus at like eight, eight 45 in the morning and try to take this thing. You might not know from those undergraduate experiences that for you, graduate school was a choice between getting an MBA and a PhD. You wanted to get a PhD for a while. Yeah, I was looking at it. So, um, when I was when I was discussing with a couple of my mentors, like, hey, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to study? Um, I had like three people in about a week ask me why I wasn't looking at PhD programs. Uh, and I'm, I couldn't really give them an answer because I didn't really know much about them. So I started looking at them. I, I thought, well, you know, this actually doesn't sound too bad. I like teaching. I like, you know, doing research and writing things. Everyone, you know, and I'm pretty decent at most of it. So let's see what happens. Um and I actually got pretty far in the applications. I was like on the, I was in like the final five for like a couple of slots at UW and a couple other things up in like Washington. And uh, there were a couple of other schools I hadn't heard back from yet uh, about my like first or second round interviews. Um, but like that final interview at University of Washington, I was talking with this guy and he essentially described his life when it came to like publishing. And that like just instantly like just turned me off it's like you know if you show up on a date and she starts like chewing with her mouth open and like like aerating the food all over the table um by the way personal experience do not recommend uh anyway uh, were you the yeah, chewer was, or the one watching the chewing i i was the person that asked for a check and left <laughs> so um yeah thankfully my wife knows how to actually like eat food um but yeah so you know, it, it like, you know, this guy described his life and I'm just like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm like every job has this BS, but I, that's, that's some BS I don't want to deal with. So I just like cut off there, switched all my applications, uh, like turned all my application PhD stuff off, started late round applications for like USC and a couple other bigger or a couple of schools that interested me. Wound up here. All right, professor, we're going to play a little game. Okay. A YouGov poll last year asked Americans if they believed that they could beat wild animals in a fight. They asked about 15 animals and uh, Americans told the pollsters whether they believed they could beat animals in a fight. And so I'm going to spin a random number generator. It's going to pick an animal for you. And you are going to tell us whether you think you could beat this animal in a fight. And if not, 
how would you even try? Let's see. You've spun number five. So number five is an eagle. Oh, um, could you beat an eagle in a fight? Thirty percent of Americans say that they could beat an eagle in a fight. Well, I wouldn't want to try. Like, I mean, well, no, there. Yeah, like, have you seen those talons? Jeez, man! Like in, in the beaks, like that thing would just rip you up. Um, and they fly. So, like, yeah. how are you going to get a like, good angle on that thing? Like, you might, you might get lucky. Uh, which is pretty much what would my my thing would be like. I would try to grab like a tennis racket or something and see like something as broad no, as no I can No weapons. Get. No weapons. Oh, no it's weapons. And it's tough for you because the army has really no doctrine for how to operate without air superiority. The army doesn't use its own doctrine for anything anyway. So let's this is true. This. this is true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if you're ever wondering why the army is so good at, at warfare, it's because like we just practice chaos on a daily basis, so we're already used to it. Um, yeah, so the, I don't know, I'd probably try to take off my shirt and like blind it or something when it's coming at me, but I really don't think there's a good chance. I'd, I'd probably lose that fight and run away. Uh, like, I, I do not want to fight an eagle. Well, I don't blame you. Uh, since you're not going to fight an eagle, where are you going after uh, business school? What's the plan right now? All right. So uh, I'm looking at a few different things. Um, looking at a lot of like supply chain operations jobs. Uh, I'm looking at some like leader development programs. Uh, every once in a while, I'll see like a data analytics or like a um, strategic partnership or, or, you know, program management job that kind of, you know, I think would, would fit pretty well. So I'm not really focused on like a, a particular company or industry. Uh, I'm more just like looking at certain job descriptions, like, okay, I could see myself doing that. I think it'd be interesting. Um, I, I don't like instantly hate that company and the thought of working for them. So yeah, like, you know, that, that's a pretty big deal for me. And then like, I, I've, I've scratched off IBM consulting. Like I, I want to have some time at home, you know, where I can, you know, I I'm 32 married. I got arthritis and all kinds of stuff. Like I, I've, I've done my time of like super high intensity work. I just don't feel like doing that anymore. So I will gladly take a pay cut for uh, not getting an ulcer in my old age. You should have stayed in the army and downgraded to a warrant officer. Dude, I actually thought about it. <laughs> for those who don't know, warrant officers are like notorious for disappearing. Like occasionally you will see them wander around like a coffee cup and a clipboard and you're like, what are they doing? And nobody knows. And they just leave. And like, you'll try to find them in the office, like in the middle of the day. And they're, they're just not there. And no one yeah. knows where they went, but somehow but things get done you know, yeah. and they, they usually show up when they need to. So, I mean, they're not there, but they've left their patrol cap on the desk. Mm -hmm. So you assume, well, he wouldn't leave the building without his patrol cap. Right. Yeah. I mean, you never know. He could just be in the shitter, like, you know, reading the news or, or, you know, whatever, but yeah, I don't know, man. Like it, it's a warrant officer. It's a crap shoot whether or not they just decided, fuck it. I'm just going to leave anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, so at the end of the podcast, I give our guests, in the tradition of Fej McDermott, who started this podcast and who I have inherited it from, uh, I give our guests two minutes at the end uh, to talk about whatever they want. So, Aaron. All right. You got um, two minutes starting now. <laughs> all right, so a uh, big point of conversation for me, guys, is going to be, uh, well, two things. One, 
we really need it like uh as a whole for the class a lot of people getting wrapped up into like did i get this project for the spring semester or what are the elections going to be just just calm down usc is a fantastic school even if you don't get like the exact class you want it will work out you'll still get a great education you'll have great prospects it will be fine you know like this is not a life and death situation the other thing i want to talk about is this, this thing that i this uh concept i came up with called political capital um, and I don't know if I stole that from somebody else or not, uh, but when you do get to a managerial position, don't just push back on things to like show your people that you're like fighting the man or whatever, because you, you have, it's kind of like the boy who cry wolf in that story. Um, at a certain point, people are just going to start ignoring you. So, you know, don't be a yes man or yes woman, but at the same time, pick your battles, you know, know what's important, learn about that. And then, you know, have a reason if you can't do something, have a recommendation or a reason why you can't, uh, alternate course of action, something. Don't just go around saying no all the time uh, because you will eventually lose what political capital you have. And then your, you know, when it comes down to an actually important situation, you won't like your, your objection won't mean anything. This is great advice. It's absolutely great advice. Aaron, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It was a great episode and a great time talking to you. Um, another Fez McDermott tradition. A uh, little note for the audience was to let the guests pick a song to play us out of the episode. We have been going to just like dead sound and the podcast is over. I'm trying to work on a way of bringing something like that back, but because American copyright law is very bad and I like owning my house instead of losing my house in a lawsuit, I'm still working on a way to bring music into the podcast. Uh, but the, the two minutes for now will have to be the way that we finish out these episodes until I figure out a way to get bumper music that is not the actual fight song from the university, who I'm pretty sure is not going to sue me for using their song on their own channel. Um, It'll be part of the USA. Just go, go with some Miley Cyrus or whatever. Yeah. John, there have been some updates to your student account. Uh, some additional charges have been placed on your student account. Um, but Aaron, I want to thank you again for being with us. This was a fun conversation and tune in next week when we're going to learn a little bit about uh, one of your classmates the Peace Corps, and the country of Cameroon. Until next time, everybody. Thanks, John. You're not supposed to give it away. Oh, well, then cut it out. Now I got to <laughs> learn to edit. <laughs> All right. See you next week, everybody. Later.